Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, very excited uh, about today's guest, a first-time guest. I'm a big fan of his, and um, I'm, and it's not something you know every guy named Goldberg might be expected to say. We have Russell Moore. Uh, he is an ordained Baptist minister, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum, and a member of the board of the, of, of the Beckett Law Firm, or the Beckett Law Institute. I think I'm missing a word. Anyway, uh, additionally, Moore hosts a weekly podcast called The Russell Moore Show and is co-host of Christianity Today's weekly podcast, The Bolton. And he's got a new book, Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. Dr. Moore, thank you for uh, joining the remnant. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. As, as they used to say, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> um, uh, David French, our mutual friend, is, has always been bitter about how I snagged the name The Remnant for a podcast before <laughs> he could. And he's actually pretty good about doing the biblical connotations of it, better than I am about doing some of the biblical connotations. But um, it's all from the same wellspring. And I, I see you as sort of one of the fighting... I grew up watching Kung Fu movies, so I mean this with love, but one of the fighting monks of the sort of the religious wing of the remnant in many ways. So why don't we just sort of, I always ask first time authors, uh, first time, I always ask guests with books. The first question is, what's your book about? So what's your book about? It's about this strange, crazy time in American religion um, in which you have a lot of people who are walking away from the church uh, because they're disillusioned with it, and and for all the right reasons. At the same time, at least in my wing of evangelicalism, you have a lot of people coming in, and by that I mean saying, I'm an evangelical Christian who don't go to church, who don't, uh, who don't uh, practice the uh, spiritual disciplines, but who identify with the politics. And so that's, that's creating this really cynical time and, and cynical, really, in two directions. I mean, some of it is cynicism of saying, well, that's all this has ever been then. Religion is just a power sham. It's just a means to an end, and I'm out. 
or the cynicism that says, ah, that's all this has ever been. It's a sham. It's a power grab. Therefore, I need to be the best possible at playing that game. Uh, and I think there's a better way than that. If you forgive me, I, I'd like to do sort of a glossary with you a little bit and just get some definitions for people. Starting with the church. When you say the church, do you mean Christianity writ large? Is Or is there some other way of understanding the term? Um, because I think it confuses some people sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I mean Christianity writ large, but in this context, I'm particularly speaking to the evangelical wing of the church because that's where I see... Uh, this problem is happening in other wings, but it's, we sort of test drove it and test marketed it. So evangelical, how would, how, how, how would you define it? How, what's a good shorthand for, for normal observers about how to think about it? Somebody who believes that, um, who, who really emphasizes new birth, conversion, personal aspect of, uh, of walk with Christ and who emphasizes the authority of the Bible. That, that would be the shorthand. Now, it's a slippery term uh, because it's just a shorthand term, and there are a lot of people uh, who are committed evangelicals who would never use the word uh, anymore. Uh, I didn't want to use the word anymore. I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in the middle of 2016 that said, don't call me an evangelical anymore because it was getting so confused with Robert Jeffress uh, sort of political activism that uh, I said that, but I haven't found an alternative to be able to to describe the kind of uh, Christians we are. Right, because I mean, and part of the problem is it's if that's what people are calling themselves, and it's it's kind of a journalistic shorthand at this point, as much as it is a theological one, which is part of the problem, right? But when you say rebirth, so this is the distinction between being born again and not being born again. I mean, this is just, I, I just want to get some of my theology right before I wander off. Yeah. It, it's the, it's the emphasis that says you're not all right with God because you're a citizen of a country or even a member of a church or in a religious family that, that each person uh, needs to personally uh, repent and believe. Right. So in, in effect, you have to renew your membership. You're, it's, you can't be a legacy. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's no legacy <laughs> memberships in the, the legacy admissions in the kingdom of God. That's right. Right. So one of the things you say, and this is this, I mean, my problem with, with reading Russell Moore is I, I know what a big influence you are on David French and David French is a big influence on me. And so I always think I'm getting my Russell Moore secondhand, but um, <laughs> one of the things you write is that evangelicism is supposed to be, is meant to be a crisis. What, what do you mean by that? Well, if you, if you just, if you think about even the most stereotypical kind of uh, sawdust uh, trail revival, uh, what's, what's meant to be there is to say, look, your life isn't going the way that it should. Turn around, uh, repent. Uh, that, the repent just means a change of mind, a change of uh, direction. And so that's a crisis. That's a, that's a turning point. And we're at a we're at a point right now where I think there are a lot of my fellow evangelicals who are getting uh, they're 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 getting really thrown by all the instability that's happening right now, and starting to veer into hand wringing. And uh, my point is to say, look, this is always the way that these uh, evangelical revival movements happen. They, they come and they go and they're in the middle of crisis. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't see that as being 
some sort of inevitable collapse. So, I, you know, I came of age sort of intellectually in the, in the nineties. Um, I read my good, a good share of my father, Newhouse, you know, naked public square and all of that. And I can give you, you're the wrong person to use the phrase chapter and verse with, but I can, I can, I can give you a good case for why the high wall separation thing is, is a kind of a, at least this, to some extent, depending on who's saying it, the sort of ACLU version of it is a misreading of history. It's not really the constitutional principle that the people think it is. But at the same time, the, a lot of the people that I hear from about tearing down the, the separation of church and state stuff, the sort of post-liberal intercourse crowd, are the kind of the last people I want to be able to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, what is the proper role in, in your view, the proper role of religion as it relates to the public square, as it relates to how it informs public policy or public life in our public institutions? Well, I, I'm a Baptist and, and we, uh, we were the OG separation of church and state people, uh, which doesn't mean that there's not the influence of religion in public life. And it certainly doesn't mean that religious people aren't involved in public life and shaped by their consciences, um, like everybody else is, except they're shaped uh, particularly religiously. That's not a violation of separation of church and state. What it means is that the church doesn't have the calling or the competency to take over the levers of government. Um, and, and that really has to do with how we understand the gospel. You can't coerce uh, people into being Christians. You can just coerce them into being pretend Christians. And that the state doesn't have the power to give itself the authority of God. Uh, and so you, you see this experiment happening over and over again with Pharaoh uh, in Egypt and uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Caesar and uh, on and on and on where authoritarians love to have some sort of religion behind them because they can say, if you're, if you're coming against me, you're not just coming against me, you're coming against God or the gods or, 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 so, or so forth. And so if you're a dissident, literally to hell with you. Uh, and I think that's a really dangerous uh, combination. And you're right. I mean, we see we see these um, we see these resurgent uh, blood and soil uh, supposedly Christian movements happening all over Europe right now, uh, and you have this this Catholic integralist uh, talk. I mean, I remember joking, kind of in the Newhouse era as you're talking about. I would joke around about how my um, grandparents' generation of Southern Baptists feared this authoritarian Catholic church. And, you know, he, here we are, evangelicals and Catholics working together on religious freedom for everybody and Religious Freedom Restoration Act and all of that. And I would say, you know, what authoritarian Catholic church? Uh, and and now uh, I'm, I'm starting to say, well, I guess there were some people who were saying, oh, that caricature sounds good. Let's do that. Uh, and now, thankfully, they're writing op-eds to each other and they're not they're not actually, they don't actually have the power to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of one of the, it's a constant theme on here of trying to figure out how seriously, how to calibrate my attention in response to some of these things. Cause on the one hand, starting at least with Christianity, you know, small minorities of committed people can affect profound change. The story of 
you know, for good or for ill, you know, from the conservative intellectual movement to Bolshevism to a thousand other things, as George Will puts it, you know, small, committed, intellectual, uh, ideologically committed minorities move the world in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So on the other hand, you, can't, you don't feel like you can ignore it. On the other hand, they're the theory behind so much of this stuff that the people writ large are with them is so potted and so unproven that you kind of feel like it's going to burn out on its own, you know, incompatibility with reality. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, I mean, this, I don't think that we're going to, that we're in any danger of a Catholic integralist state that's imposing blue laws and that sort of thing on, on American culture. But it's kind of like the movements that we saw in evangelicalism of uh, theonomy. Let's, let's, uh, let's take the Mosaic law and reimpose it so that you stone disobedient children and so forth. That, that was never a big movement. It was never really, uh, it was never really a danger. So anytime that you would have sort of these secular lefty types, you would say, oh, look, the theonomists are coming. They're going to take us all over. Uh, it's a theocracy. It just kind of roll your eyes at that. But there's something behind it uh, that really is a, a problem. And I think the same thing's true with Catholic integralism in and of itself. It's not that big a deal. But when you put it alongside the rest of this illiberalism and that idea of using, uh, using religion uh, to determine who's in and who's out. So whatever the majority uh, culture is, chooses the religious uh, symbols and practices and basically imposes that socially. That's a lot bigger than Catholic integralism. All right. So I want to get to all that stuff in a second, but... I got you here. And I, I just want to ask, cause this is like, sometimes I just want to ask questions. I would ask you if I was sitting next to you on a plane rather than like for the benefit of any listeners in, in Baptist seminary or an evangelical seminary, whatever the word, how much reading do you do of Catholic, you know, the doctors of the church, how much Aquinas and St. Augustine do you do? Or is it a, is it because of the, historical tensions between faiths, you kind of say, eh, we're not going to go deep on that. And we're going to go with this other tradition. I mean, I'm just, I've always kind of curious on the intellectual level, because some of the things you're talking about, they ping city of God, city of man for St. Augustine and that kind of thing for me. But I don't know if that's, and I'm just kind of curious if it's a cultural, if it's an acceptable touchstone. In oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. There, there, there's a lot of uh, Augustine Aquinas, but especially Augustine. I mean, that's, Protestantism, for, for rightly or wrongly, sees itself as Augustinian. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the reasons why uh, Pope Benedict, uh, there were a lot of uh, Protestants who really resonated with, with the writings of Pope Benedict in a way they just didn't with some other popes. And I was mentioning this to, I think it was George Weigel, who said, uh, well, of course, he's an Augustinian. Uh, he, he's, he's not a, he's not a philosophical Thomist. It's you, you kind of recognize your people there. Yeah. No, I mean, that make, I mean, also just the whole concept of the born again part, I mean, yeah. given his narrative about what a wayward soul he was, you know, it kind of, it kind of makes sense to me. I just was kind of curious. All right. So it feels to me like I, I spent most of my career being a pretty passionate defender of Christian conservatives and evangelicals, and it still kind of sticks in my craw. I can only imagine what you're going through uh, to criticize evangelicals because it's just feels like 
they've been so caricatured by popular culture, by sort of mainstream media for so long that my instincts are always to run to their defense. Mm -hmm. But then once you sort of make the sort of the leap and realize, no, no, there are, there are some legit things to criticize here. Mm -hmm. You realize that this has been a long time in coming, right? It's sort of like Hemingway's bankruptcy. It's gradual and then sudden. And so where does this, where do the problems that lead to the stuff we're going to get to about Trump's popularity and the distortion of things, right? If you're going to say, where did the, where, where did we start going wrong? What, wh where would you start the story? It's kind of, I, I was just reading this morning, a, uh, a Catholic uh, writer back during the, um, the height of the sexual abuse uh, crisis in the Catholic church, who was saying there was a time when we would say media elites hate the Catholic church for our virtues and not for our vices. Those were happy days. Uh, we would <laughs> like to get back to that. And I, I would say something similar with uh, evangelicalism. I, I think a lot of this is the shadow side of, um, of what made evangelicalism successful. Um, so it's, it's entrepreneurial. Um, it, you don't need bishops to give you permission to go and uh, plant churches on the frontier. Uh, so it's, it's by nature uh, populist. Uh, Billy Graham comes into a, a community and can get large numbers of people together, uh, and that replicates itself in in churches all over the place. I mean, that's all for the good, but it has a it has a dark side. And I think one of the things that happened was there was a lot of, and I include myself in this, a lot of bearing with hucksters and grifters because we thought that they were fringe. And so why, why spend time uh, dealing with the guy who's, um, you know, selling books about how uh, all of the, the founders were, American founders were born again Christians? You know, like, I mean, if, if somebody, if, if they can read Thomas Jefferson, uh, but you just, you, you consider that to be fringe. And then you take with that, it is really hard in American life but it's even harder in religious life to come in with any nuance and to say, okay, we have real problems here, but they're not an existential threat to you. We have some real religious liberty concerns. Um, the, the, the administration really is trying to force nuns uh, to, to pay for birth control. We shouldn't do that. And here's why. Those are real concerns, but you're not about to be uh, loaded up for the camps. You know, you you can't do that uh, without um, in, in a way that's really uh, marketable. And evangelical Christianity became a huge, huge market. And and there was it's kind of I think all the time. I mentioned this in the book about uh, David Frum said one time, and it it really hit me as to say, oh, that's exactly right. That he, and he was talking about a Republican Party context where he said there came a point where you realized you, you all thought you were on the same side, uh, but you realized that the things that you thought were peripheral were actually central for other people and vice versa. And I think that's part of what's being revealed in evangelicalism. So there were a lot of people that I thought, I thought, well, what they really care about is the theology and the mission and the culture war uh, grievance. That's an application of that. 
they're, they're, they're frustrated that they can't get their, their mission accomplished. They're frustrated theologically. And so the, the outside culture is imposing these conversations that they're kicking back against. And I think now you look around and say, I think for a lot of people, the culture war grievance actually was the center of it all. And the theology was built up around that. Those are two just very different ways of looking at the world. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The way I I've kind of explained it to people because it's just the way I thought about it at the time when I had that sort of epiphany about the peripheral versus the central was, you know, in political science, they have this phrase about the president wears many hats. He's the head of state. He's the head of government. He's chief diplomat, commander in chief, right? Different roles kind of thing. And as a sort of public intellectually adjacent guy who was a syndicated columnist, but also a TV pundit, but also a magazine writer and a book author. And I'd had all these different roles. I never found much conflict between my different hats. And then with the rise of Donald Trump, you sort of saw what was the one hat that people refused to let go of, right? And for an enormous number of people, it was their party hat, right? I wore a party hat. I was like, you know, I'm a Republican. I'm happy to, you know, root for the team and, and try to help make arguments for the team but not at the expense of some of these other more dearly held roles. And there are a lot of people for whom being a Republican operative, being a Republican team player was the central core of their being, even though they had the same job description as I had. And that was a real revelation for me. Um, and it's, it feels very similar to the sort of the kind of thing that you're talking about is like when everything's 
when all the tide's going your way, everybody in the room seems like they're pulling the oars in the same direction. And then, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I, I thought about this in terms of in 2012, there would be all, all of these uh, secular journalists who would say, are evangelicals going to vote for Mitt Romney uh, since he's Mormon? Is, is that going to, are they going to uh, stay home or not vote for him? And I said, no, they'll, they'll vote for him. And they did. It was at, at right about the same levels as, as ever. If, if Mitt Romney had been replaced with Glenn Beck, mm-hmm. uh, the Mormonism would not have even come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it would have been the same sort of enthusiasm in a lot of these circles uh, as we saw uh, four years later. It, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the Latter-day Saint theology. It was that Mitt Romney's a good Mormon. And, and actually is somebody who believes in, in norms and, and, and so forth. And Glenn Beck is a populist dem- demagogue. And so it's easier to, uh, to, to get that kind of wildly enthusiastic cult of personality support. Right. I mean, although, I mean, it's not like they disliked him because he was a good Mormon. They disliked him also because, or they had reservations about him, because he seemed like a Mormon Bush, right? I mean, a Mormon establishment kind of guy norms you know and all that kind of stuff um um all right so what is what is specifically the appeal of donald trump for evangelicals and, and let, me, let me put it this way if given where the culture has gone in the last 20 years would donald trump have had anything like the appeal 20 years ago or is it that the times ripened for the man I, I think the times ripened uh, for the man. And I, th- I think the appeal kind of comes in at different uh, levels. So there are a lot of, um, th- there are a lot of uh, times where there was somebody who, who I heard on uh, a radio program or podcast or something talking about me in 2016, that you could almost see me going through the stages of grief. Uh, in which it was at first, well, evangelicals aren't going to back him. And then it was, well, church-going evangelicals aren't backing him. And then it was, well, a lot of evangelicals are backing him, but they're just, uh, they're, they're making a lesser of two evils argument. And then it was, oh, Trump owns the evangelicals. In my own defense, at every stage of that, that was true. Uh, and so you had some enthusiastic Trumpist sort of evangelicals, but they really were very fringy at first. And when people asked me, I remember in March of 2016, uh, some reporters said, if Trump is the nominee, what percentage of the white evangelical vote will he get? And I said, 80%. And it was, it was 81. So it was a little off, but not a lot. Uh, And, and that's because I knew that there's this instinctual, um, the, the Republican Party is our party, and you add with it this catastrophic language that's been used uh, for a long time. This is the most important election of our lifetime. I mean, that's been said uh, all of my life in, in, in church context. You add those two things together, you're going to have support for him. What worried me at the time, and I think I think I was vindicated on this, is a lot of the people who would say to me, look, we're not for Trump. We know that he's an awful uh, human being. We know he lacks character. We know, we know all of these problems. 
we're just we're just voting lesser of two evils uh, over Hillary Clinton is that I mean I, that wasn't my calculation I could understand it but I also knew how American life uh, works now and that you just weren't going to have people who were going to say yeah I'm with Trump on the judicial appointments but I'm opposed to him on the Muslim ban uh, that just that just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I think uh, the tax cuts are okay. The paying off porn stars aren't. That that isn't the way that partisan uh, identity works right now. And, and and sure enough, that that is exactly what happened. You don't hear the lesser of two evils argument at all. So I think there was this sense of uh, in in some ways evangelicals were responding to Trump for the exact same reasons that every other Trumpist does. But they add to it this sense of times are different. You, you you can't work within the norms of the constitutional system anymore because the other side is so evil and so irredeemable that this is our last uh, step. So you, you, the, many of them took that flight ninety three election uh, argument and just baptized it and and made it bigger. Um, yeah, you told a story. I haven't finished the book. It's been a crazy time. Um, but you told a story when I was at a off the record conference with you. And I asked you beforehand, if I could ask you about it, cause I think it's such a perfect encapsulation about a pastor who got a complaint from a congregant for talking about turn the other cheek. Can you just sort of tell that story and then we can talk about it? Yeah. Not just one pastor. It, this, this is happening all the time now, almost the exact same, uh, almost the exact same account. A uh, pastor will get up and will just sort of parenthetically say something about love your enemies, turn the other cheek. And afterward, someone will come up and say, why are you giving those liberal talking points? When the pastor turns around and says, you know, I'm just directly and literally quoting Jesus Christ. The response is not, oh, I'm sorry, I need to go spend some extra time in Sunday school. Uh, the response is, yeah. That was fine then. That's that that's fine in a neutral culture, but that doesn't work anymore. That doesn't work in a in a hostile culture. And you just step back and say, <laughs> Do you really think that Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount in Mayberry? I mean, this is in the context of a Roman Empire armed to the teeth, taking out dissidents all over the place, not to mention a really sexually hedonistic uh, sort of uh, sort of culture as well that didn't start in the 1960s uh, but there's that that mentality the stakes are too high to actually be Christian we, we have to we have to put our Christianity in a blind trust and and fight like social Darwinists and then after that's all over we can resume Christianity which is in my view, a, a fundamentally, not just non-Christian, but anti-Christian idea. Yeah. I mean, it's an unusual place for me to get all defensive on behalf of, of Christianity. I mean, I'm, I've got no problem with Christianity, but like, I'm used to that argument about conservatism and I have enough contempt for it when it comes to conservatism. Because like, when I say conservatism, it's sort of back to the hat wearing thing, right? Like when I say conservatism, I mean, like your actual principles, what you believe to be true what you believe to be right, what you believe to be good. And the idea that you should abandon them based upon political exigency or, or convenience without much evidence that abandoning those views will 
get the results you want anyway, right? And, but at least these are secular norms, right? These are secular positions. The idea that, I mean, you're a good guy to correct me if I get this wrong, but I'm pretty sure Jesus was crucified. <laughs> yeah. because it wasn't a neutral culture well exactly yes. <laughs> and you know and like the and the whole this whole idea of what, what i what still just, just sort of drives me crazy is, is I, we need to put on pause like i better to put this this is a point david french has made it often part of the point of being a good christian is kind of that you're persecuted for your beliefs, not necessarily yeah. crucified, put on a cross, but like that you're supposed to be a little outside the mainstream culture, a little, there's supposed to be a little bit of attention, a little bit of a price, a little bit of friction because it's supposed to be harder to be a good person, right? To do the right thing, to be a Christian, to be Christ-like. And, and like the idea that religion has to be convenient to your politics feels like heresy to me. But like I, I, again, I, I don't want to get righteous on behalf of some other people because that's a weird place for me to be. Yeah, well, well, I'll say it, it. It is heresy, and and part of the problem I think is because there's this confusion um, for a long time. I mean, even just think of the language of uh, moral majority uh, that you had this sense of we're the real America. Most people actually are with us. And you combine that with a siege mentality persecution complex and you end up with uh, the, the worst of, of all of it because you end up with people who believe themselves to be uh, the legitimate mainstream uh, real uh, heirs of this country who are being persecuted by these shadowy coastal figures. And there's enough truth in that to make it uh, plausible. I mean, th there are there are uh, genuine efforts. Uh, there there are people on the left who think, look, uh, everybody's going to secularize anyway. We're going to be Norway. Uh, we're just helping people along, and the quicker we can get you to where to where we're going to go, uh, the better. They're, those are legitimate sorts of things, but you add to that this kind of um, it, it's what I find is what usually takes off in the persecution mindset usually is not legitimate you know, questions of accreditation for religious schools, for instance. It's instead you're insulting me. Uh, you know, they, they, they don't say they don't say Merry Christmas at Starbucks sort of thing. That's actually what resonates, which isn't about religious liberty it's it's just about status and grievance i mean i agree with you there are definitely you know the the new house was right to write the naked public square i mean the the sort of cleansing of of organized religion also just of tradi tradition as somehow suspect or wrong has been is an old story but like anti-religious sentiment is a very old story i mean what was it diderot strangled the last king with the entrails of the last priest i mean this is and not a new idea. Um, and yet, um, it feels, I mean, getting to the Hemingway bankruptcy suddenly part, it really does feel, and I, you know, this is part of the reason you wrote the book, that the floor is kind of dropping out yes. on, on organized religion in some ways. And 
I'm kind of curious. I suspect your answer is going to be both and and rather than, you know, and, and a chicken and the egg kind of thing. But how much of this is about a crisis of masculinity and how much of it is a crisis of religion? It's it's more a crisis of masculinity that is framed in terms of religion because it's it's able to be made uh, ultimate that way. And, and it also is a it's not just masculinity, it's culture. I mean, there's there's a reason why uh, the great replacement theory uh, resonates, according to the surveys, with white evangelicals more than anybody, uh, or as in in higher categories than than regular uh, Americans, because there's this sense of um, our cultures being taken away from us, and masculinity is a part of that. Um, but there there are all kinds of racial and ethnic uh, categories that are added to it as well. And if you, and if you have the religious angle, you're really able to make that, uh, make that ultimate. So for instance, if you just look at, you look at the polling about what do white evangelical voters actually care about? Not what, what are their positions on things, but what do they actually care about? I mean, for the past several years, that has shown immigration issues, race issues, refugee issues. Uh, the abortion uh, issue is way down there. Uh, not because uh, evangelicals are pro-choice at all. It's because that's not what these people care about. It's instead what they can use to say, uh, if you're not with us and with this whole uh, program, then you're for abortion. And so it, it becomes a it becomes a useful tool, but it's really not the the, the motivating factor uh, behind these these voters. And I, so I think a lot of it is that sense of uh, they're taking our country away from us. And part of the us is the church, including for a lot of people. I mean, I, I can just look around on Facebook, people I uh, in the community where I grew up, and you have a lot of people who are panicking about the anti-Christian uh, measures to wipe out the churches they don't go to. And you have, uh, you have people that I know have not been in a church for anything other than a funeral since the first Bush administration, but who are posting memes about Jesus and the devil wrestling, uh, who's going to win, you know, support support Christianity. And, and that's really what it means. It's a, it's a culture. So, I mean, I was going to follow up with, okay, masculinity, but what about, and then how much of it is about race? But let me ask you it this way, since you touched on some of that. I've been, for most of my professional life, a big enemy of horseshoe theory. My first book, Liberal Fascism, my whole point was that if you define conservatism as uh, two pillars, traditional Christian, Judeo-Christian values and classical liberalism, then you cannot call American, you cannot call conservatives in the Anglo-American tradition fascists, right? Because they're not statists and they're not neo-pagan, right? <laughs> and um, we can, I'm not trying to have an argument about all that, but I'm just explaining where I'm coming from on this. Now horseshoe theory is all over the place. Like if you just, if you cover up the bylines and you read a bunch of the post-liberal integralists about economic policy, it's Elizabeth Warren. 
and vice versa, right? I mean, you have to change some of the adjectives and and whatever, but like the ideas are the same for J.D. Vance and Bernie Sanders about a lot of things these days. And and so for me, as a sort of classical, uh, classical liberal on economics and role of government stuff and a culturally conservative guy, if not particularly, you know, uh, overtly religious, that's sort of a big part of the argument about what the remnant is about for me, right? It's just like, I haven't changed my views. All these people have gone another way. And so I, the question I kind of have for you is, how much of the things that you've seen over the last 20 years can really be explained by the right's internalization of left-wing arguments about identity, right? I mean, identity politics is supposed to be great for black people and Hispanic people and gay people, whatever. But identity politics, all of a sudden we're told, is terrible and evil for white people for totally understandable reasons, right? I get it. Like white identity politics is creepy in a way that black identity politics isn't for historical contextual reasons. But the, the sort of therapeutic culture, the, the, the sort of the, the, the arguments about populism, which are essentially romantic arguments about the primacy of feelings over everything else. When I see the problems that are befalling conservative movement and, and the part of evangelicalism that you're talking about, what I really see is on all these fronts, a lot of people on the right saying, if we can't beat them, join them. We'll use their kind of arguments for our ends. And, and that includes for race, right? If, you, if you're going to reduce uh, politics down to racial grievances and, and demands for power for my race over your race or my tribe over your tribe, well, then, you know, what the right is doing with white identity politics I may disagree with the ends, but like, and, and some of the rhetoric, but on a fundamental sort of philosophical, all they're basically doing is saying, you guys were right. So we're going to use the same kind of arguments that you guys used. Am I, am I missing something? Does that sound sort of right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's almost, there's almost a vibe more mm -hmm. than a, more than an ideology at work. In, in so much of this. There, there's a reason why, I mean, I, I was noticing some evangelicals defending Andrew Tate uh, the, the, the other day. I'm like, okay, Andrew, Andrew Tate is, uh, even if innocent on the charges in Romania, is, is a repulsive, uh, sexually libertine pagan, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, th that comes through that I think, I, I think does something to mobilize uh, some of these folks. The other thing is, I think it's the end result. I had a, a friend of mine who said, I think really this is the end result of, uh, of a generation of self-esteem and you can do whatever you want to and follow your heart and uh, and all of that and then that leads to a kind of disappointment that translates over into anger um i i don't think so i think it's actually the reverse i think there is such a low expectation of human nature now mm -hmm. that uh th that the argument is everybody really is a fraud which means you have to be as fraudulent as they are. And that, that's what I think is behind a lot of this. I mean, even when you come to, there are, uh, uh, when Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, fell, 
nobody was saying, uh, oh, can you believe such a <laughs> godly guy? We really respected his piety and so forth. Nobody said that. I mean, everybody knew what Jerry Falwell was about because he told us. He would say, I'm not a pastor. I'm a real estate developer. And Trump's a, Trump's a good uh, Christian leader because he makes payroll. Mm-hmm. And he he uh, he has jobs, uh, so y- you have that sense of everybody really is wink wink nod nod uh, a grifter and a huckster, and only the grifters and the hucksters will win. And I think that that brings with it a sort of ethos that makes all the principles, whatever they are, just completely transferable. Yeah, well, I, I certainly think at the elite level. There's a lot of that, and certainly there's a lot more of it than we thought there was, you know, this, that where we sort of began the conversation. That whole argument, you know, that but he fights argument about Trump from 2015, 2016 was really a, and, and the mockery I still get about, you know, oh, what about your norms now? You know, that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is basically this argument that says, if you have principles, you are t- fighting with one hand behind your back. You shouldn't have principles because it, it, they're inconvenient to the to the fight. And I was like, what are we fighting for if we don't have principles? Yeah. And, but I want to push back a little bit, you know, you, you've all of in makes this point and I think it's a good one. And you kind of alluded to it earlier that you agreed to it, which was when you're talking about the way the partisan mind works, you weren't going to have people sort of saying I'm against the porn star, but, uh, you know, payoffs, but I'm for this. And I, you know, the, you don't do a Chinese menu thing. You just go all in. And I think that, you know, Yuval makes this point that it turns out that cynicism is actually very hard to sustain for some people. And people don't want to be told that their guy is a lesser of two evils. I mean, again, oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so uh, it can't purely be that the rank and file are grifters and con men who think principles are for suckers. They actually have this principle that principles are bad, which is a di- kind of meta, <laughs> but it's a different thing, right? Yeah, but it but it starts there. I mean, it 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 starts. I mean, I've I've watched the psychology at work over the past uh, seven years with stages of people who would say, "Look, I know this is not uh, this is not good," but I mean, that, that, that's one of the reasons why you look at a figure like a Lindsey Graham and, and everyone is, what happened? Can you believe it? I'm like, I, I see that a thousand times a day uh, with just normal, regular church-going evangelicals who, who go through the exact, same, the exact same path. And it does. It doesn't stay with, well, uh, this, is, this is bad, but... Uh, but it's it's better than the alternative. It doesn't stay there. It you ultimately have to have some way of saying what I'm doing is good, and especially when you're framing it in everything's an apocalyptic showdown between good and evil. Uh, I have to be able to say this is this is good. That's why you end up with the uh, you end up with the imagery of uh, you know the the sort of Putinesque uh, drawings of. Trump as a ripped guy on horseback and, and, and those sorts of things going around at the social media level, that, that really shows up in people's minds in a sense where I don't think most people say to themselves, well, paying off a porn star is a good thing to do. 
It's just that they filter it out. Uh, they, they don't think about it at all. And if they're challenged on it, they'll say, well, yeah, but what about, you know, all these guys are, have porn stars. Uh, but they just don't think about it at all. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Before we move on from the Trump stuff in general, Let's say, heaven forbid, Trump has an accident tomorrow, or let's say, you know, he drops out of the race and and decides to go to a monastery and get right with God. Spend or, more time with his family. Yeah, some some highly unlikely scenario in the near future. Does does the evangelical movement start to heal at that point, or does it start to, or does it continue on this path? Um, I, I think what's happening right now is that the evangelical movement is is tearing apart or has torn apart. So I really don't think that you're going to have all of these different groups just coalescing and resuming with 2015. And I think there are a lot of people who have expected that and have expected that for a long time. And, and I did uh, for a while. I mean, I remember when Access Hollywood uh, tape released, I was calling, you know, like-minded evangelicals and saying, look, there are going to be a lot of people who are really hurt. They weren't expecting this. These Trump supporting evangelicals don't say, I told you so. Don't relitigate everything that we've been saying for the past year. Instead, uh, just help people through this. Well, I mean, that was a useless call because there was no, there was no crisis for anybody. Uh, it was, yeah, and, and moved on. And, and the people who were defending it on television, when even Mike Pence wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, were evangelical leaders and Rudy Giuliani. Those are the only people who would go on television. Uh, so I don't think we're going to go back to that. And that has more, that, that deals with more than just sort of the political, uh, Trump phenomenon. I had, a, um, I was with a group of pastors and one of them said, he's went through a list of pastors he knows who are out of ministry, uh, some who have gotten sucked into alcoholism just because of despair or, or pain pill addiction or all kinds of crises. And he said, what was it about 2021 that kind of broke so many of us? And another pastor in the room said, it's because up until then, we thought we were just uh, hanging on short term through something. So people were saying, look, everything's going crazy. My church is divided. People are yelling at each other. Let's just get through this 2016 election or let's just get through COVID or let's just get through. So you end up in 2021, uh, the COVID's 
light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, there's a really boring uh, president who's not stirring up the same sort of stuff. And it's still crazy. Uh, and so there was this sense of, well, this is just the, the new normal. Uh, so I don't think it's just, let's just resume. But I do think that what's happened is you have, you've always had a lot of different factions in evangelical Christianity. And the lines are reforming in different places right now. Uh, so it's, there are a lot of people who previously would have thought of one another as being in some other uh, religious tribe who are finding each other. And, and that's, I mean, that's happened many times before in uh, even just in American religious history. And I think that's what's happening now. So there, there's just going to be a very different looking uh, sorting of evangelicalism. And it's kind of like, I mean, the sorting has good and bad uh, to it. One of the things I was really concerned about and have been concerned about for the last 15 years is that you would have for a long time, you would have churches that were fighting with each other between the old people and the young people over what worship songs to sing and so forth. That suddenly ended, but it didn't end because those people started getting along. It ended because churches stopped having old people and young people together. You would have one church that's made up of 70-year-olds and another that's made up of 20-year-olds. I think that's kind of what's happening on some of these cultural and political fronts too. Yeah, so let's talk about that just a little bit. Like, wh wh where are young evangelicals going politically, theologically, culturally? Does the, the trajectory of young evangelicals make you more hopeful or more depressed? It, it, it makes me more hopeful long term uh, if we can get past the next five years or so. Because here, here's, what, here's what I'm finding, and I'm on college campuses uh, all the time. Young evangelical uh, students are there. Um, they're, they're not politicized uh, culture warriors at all. There is nothing uh, about that. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the number one question I get asked from not just college age, but, but young adults, 20s and 30s, is to say, help me know how to maintain a relationship with my mom and dad. Uh, it, it's, it's the reverse of what it used to be, where I would have parents saying, I want to connect with my 20-something who's walked away from the faith. How do I deal with my prodigal? You have these people who are talking about, what do I do with my parents who just want to go over conspiracy theories and argue about Trump all the time? And, I, I, and what is cheering to me is that almost never do they say, uh, help me win the argument with my parents. It's, I, I want to be in a relationship with my parents. I want to connect with my parents. How do I do that when they're insisting that this be the, the definition? Um, so there's, there's that. But it, and it's also the case that if there's a, I mean, um, sometimes I'll be on a campus and there'll be some, you know, 20-something-year-old uh, guy who's showing up uh, yelling about culture war stuff and anti-vax stuff or whatever. Uh, it, it is almost never an evangelical Christian. As a matter of fact, I cannot think of a single instance in the past uh, several years where it's an evangelical Christian. It's usually uh, somebody who's kind of uh, somewhere on the 
trajectory of Jordan Peterson to Andrew Tate. And that's who those people are being shaped and formed by. The evangelical Christian students are the ones who, for instance, I was uh, teaching in a, in a uh, program, secular university, for uh, students who want to be in politics in, in various ways. None of the evangelical Christian students wanted to be, that I talked to, wanted to be in electoral politics. None of them, which is completely different from what would have been the case uh, 10 years ago. They wanted to be ambassadors. They wanted to, to work in uh, the Defense Department or something like that. Uh, but they didn't want to be in elected politics because they have this conclusion, okay, well, what I can see is that you either need to be a leftist, which I'm not, or a crazy demagogue, which I'm not, which means there's not a place for me. And I'll have to come in and say, hey, I don't think you realize just how quickly things can change in American political life. So they're kind of, they kind of have this, this lack of confidence when it comes to that stuff. But, but I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of shook sometimes by the wave of sincerity that I see in young evangelicals. It's, it's, it's almost, it's the difference between the office UK and the office USA. <laughs> I mean, it's just what, what they're, what they're asking about is, Hey, can you help us know how to pray? I mean, the, the, those sorts of things. So there's a, there's a, there's a genuine kind of sincerity that I think some of it is coming from exhaustion with all of that. And frankly, that's not what I expected because I expected that what would happen is that this stuff would get really normalized for the kids who never knew a time that wasn't Trumpist uh, and that they would, they would replicate it. I really don't see that happening. Just a curiosity. I, I, it's purely anecdotal and people think because I left Fox news in a huff um, that I'm just, I'm holding a grudge and all that kind of stuff. But I, I saw it with my own mom. I see it. I have had conversations with so many friends, parents. Um, when you talk about how do I communicate with my parents, it's, it's like when you were describing that, I almost felt like you just left out the part of it where they said, I can't get them to turn down Fox News yeah, yeah. and have a conversation with me that isn't about what they just saw on Fox News. Right, yeah. And it is, it is astounding to me, and it's something I did not appreciate, is, is that because the actual content of Fox News during the day isn't actually all that radicalizing. But the cumulative effect seems to be to make a lot of old people kind of nuts. And it feels like it's had the same effect on Christianity, organized Christianity that it's had on sort of organized conservatism. Yeah, except it's, it's nuts in a different way because now it is relationship-defining nuts. I mean, for a long time you've had, gosh, my mom is just, completely uh, all she wants to talk about are the black helicopters or whatever. Uh, now it's at a place where you have parents who won't talk to their kids uh, because they're not into that. Uh, or, I mean, I even know of uh, a couple that had a huge crisis uh, because one set of in-laws found out the other set of in-laws didn't support Donald Trump. Uh, and so it became this huge issue like it was and, uh, you know, somebody's marrying outside the faith because to them, it felt like that's exactly what was happening. 
That's not depressing at all. All right. So on a, on a, on a, on a more uplifting, if not upbeat uh, note, you write, you, you, you write a lot about C.S. Lewis, or you mentioned C.S. Lewis a lot. Is he your biggest intellectual influence? Um, you know, and what, 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 what can Christians or non-Christians take from his work and what would you recommend they read? Yeah, I mean, he transformed my life when I was going through this spiritual crisis as a 15-year-old. That a lot of people, when they look at some of the stuff that's gone on over the past several years, will say, well, I mean, were you ever close to losing your faith? No, because I was kind of inoculated uh, to that. I already went through that as a 15-year-old wondering, is this all just really politics and, and culture? And because I had read Chronicles of Narnia so many times um, as a kid, I recognized C.S. Lewis's name on the spine of mere Christianity. And that, uh, that helped to turn me around, not because of the arguments, uh, although I don't have a problem with the arguments. It's just that my problem wasn't intellectual. My problem was, is this all just marketing and mobilization? And Lewis was pointing beyond all that. It was very clear just in tone of voice coming through the writing that he's not trying to sell me anything. He's, he's bearing witness to, to something. And so I found, I found him very helpful. I, I'd encourage, there's a little book, a collection of essays called uh, The Weight of Glory. Uh, that's probably my favorite. Uh, and you'll, you'll get a sense of, of, of Lewis as you read it. Um, he's, he has an essay in there about learning in wartime. He gives to some students in 1939, um, Oxford, where, who are asking, why should we even be spending time with this stuff when we don't even know if we're going to be, we're going to survive this war. Uh, and it's a brilliant essay about how that is always the condition you're in. And so you take the disillusionment, um, and be, Lose your illusions uh, about the right things, but don't yield to despair. And I think that's really appropriate for this moment. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I always quote from Lewis is, you know, the danger of the men without chests, right? Yeah. Is that you, you breed a generation of people who kind of are couch potato Nietzscheans, right? And everything is sort of about my... My, my short-term entertainment, the last man kind of thing. And the problem with these kinds of, I've been thinking about this a lot because there was this, this essay that started a big conversation about the masculinity crisis. It was in the Washington Post last week by this woman, Christine Emba. And, and the thing that worries me about the, the people that you're talking about evangelicals losing, right? Just losing to video games and porn and all these kinds of things is, history kind of shows us, I mean, basically the story of civilization is figuring out what to do with young men. Yeah. And if you civilize young men, I mean, this is part of Moynihan's point, you know, about the Irish slums of the 19th century and the urban black youth of the six, 1960s. Um, you can go back to ancient Rome. I mean, this is a universal human problem is that young men are kind of wired to want to go to war. And you got to channel masculinity in positive ways, or it's going to be channeled in negative ways. And that's what worries me is that the, the, the kids without chest, it's sort of like you can't sustain the cynicism. You also can't sustain boredom for too long. And it's exciting. 
national blood and soil stuff is exciting. It fills you up with meaning. That's why it's always been attractive to young men. And, and I'm no longer the, it can't happen here guy that I once was. I think America has great antibodies against it happening here, but I'm not, it's not guaranteed, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm the dad of five sons. And one of the things that I have seen uh, work so well um, is the inclusion of these young men in churches, not as consumers of youth ministry, but as actual needed, responsible members of the body. Uh, and, and there are a lot of churches that would say, well, we can't, we can't do that. They're not ready for that. They're, they're too immature uh, for that. Well, yeah, if that's your expectation. But if you, I mean, I, it was an epiphany for me. I think one day we were having a, a men's uh, breakfast at, at our church. It was 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Um, and the discussion was going to be on porn. And so it was, we, we, want, we want everybody, teenage boys uh, and up, uh, to be here. So I took my sons and I thought, my teenage sons, and I thought, they'll hate this. Uh, they'll gripe about it. It's going to be awkward and weird for them, but it'll be good for them. And it was one of the best experiences that they have had. And the reason for it, it had nothing to do with the content. It was that you had a group of men who were really treating them as responsible uh, people who could, uh, you know, when I saw my 15-year-old son praying for uh, a 55-year-old guy about his uh, marriage problems. I mean, there, there's a sense of membership uh, in that that's transformative. I don't, I don't want to keep you longer than I promised, but um, until, I mean, I, you know this history orders of magnitude better than I do, but basically my understanding is that basically from basically the Scopes trial until Jimmy Carter, the cliche was the that the born again Christians, evangelical Christians were quietist, right? That they were sort of withdrawn from politics. Didn't mean they necessarily didn't vote, but they weren't an organized faction within electoral politics. And that sort of change has politics. Let me put it this way. What would an evangelical revival or religious revival look like? And would it be better on net for Christianity? The project of Christianity is saving souls. Just to say it's a numbers game. Would it be better on net if, if Christianity got out of politics for the Christians themselves? Um, or does part of a religious revival mean a renewal of trying to figure out how to incorporate biblical values rightly understood into our public institutions? I, I think it's probably going to take a little period of what's going to look like quietism. Um, of a, a stepping back from politics because we don't know how to do it. Uh, and, and, and so you end up with what's really not politics at all. It's all just tribal uh, signaling. And right now, I mean, the crisis is you have a lot of people who are saying, is this just, is this just a means to an end? I mean, we saw that happen with the mainline Protestant denominations, and it was to the left you know, where their younger generations started to say, well, if this is really just politics and just tell us what you want, recycling, uh, you know, uh, uh, stop to nuclear energy, whatever it is, just tell us it and we won't give up a Sunday morning. And that I think is happening in the, in the rightward direction uh, with, with evangelicals as well. So I, I do think that there will be a period that will 
have to look like something like political disengagement. I don't think it should stay there. Uh, and, and I think that there's a lot of good evangelical political engagement that happens in areas that people don't see. So I mean, there are a lot of, uh, and usually those things come in alliances uh, where you have evangelicals who have a, a particular moral motivation working with uh, other people. I mean, for instance, uh, International Justice Mission uh, dealing with uh, sex trafficking all over the, the world. This isn't a political organization in the sense of a partisan organization, but it's, it, it, I mean, that, that's political. Uh, that's what they're doing. I think you'll see more of that. All right. Um, I guess it's been Russell Moore. Um, the book is uh, Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America. We'll put a link to his podcast, to the book, everything else in the show notes. Uh, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Okay. So uh, Dr. Moore has left the studio. Um, I was really looking forward to the conversation. I, I, I hope we did the book justice. You know, I'm, I'm just going in and out of it. It's been a crazy time. Um, but I'm such a huge fan of Dr. Moore's and I'm such a huge fan of really the courage that he's shown over the last seven years. And uh, I have many more thoughts about all of this stuff, but now is not the time to get into them. So let me know what you thought about the show. And if you can become a subscriber to The Dispatch, that would be super terrific awesome. And beyond that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.